Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Joel. In our first lesson, we got down to verse 7. As far as we got, we gave you a kind of an introduction. And we got down to the seventh verse. The first that were affected by the destruction in the days of Joel were the drunkards, the sob of the drunkards, verses 5 through 8. And we'll see verse 8 as a kind of a turning point to the, the next ones that are going to lament. Because all lamented because of the destruction that had come. So it says in verse 8, Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth or a husband for the husband of her youth. And God wanted Israel, who was to him like the husband, like the youth of his espousal. He was the husband of their youth. And we give you references. There's some in the book of, uh, let's see, I believe it's in the book of Isaiah chapter, Isaiah, if I can find it, chapter 3. I think that's where I found it. Well, I may not have the right reference. But anyway, uh, the Lord was to them as the one that was uh, their particular love. I can't find the verse. But anyway, we'll find that that is true of, of Israel as far as their relationship to the Lord is concerned. Maybe it's 3 verse 26. Let me try that. See what 3 verse 26 says. That may relate to the day of the Lord, but it's the future prophecy of their sorrow. No, it's talking about the day of the Lord that uh, will cause Israel to mourn. And it says, uh, Her gates shall lament and mourn, and she shall be desolate. Being desolate, shall sit upon the ground. But we find <coughs> that uh, Israel was to the Lord as the uh, virgin of his youth. And it says back in Joel now, chapter. 1 verse 8, Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. And it says in verse uh, 9, and verse 9 has to do with the sigh of the priests. And then verses 10 through 12, the sob of the husbandman. And the vine dressers, of course, are included. So let's look at verse 9. It says, The meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests, the Lord's ministers, mourn. So first, the, if you notice in verse 5, the drunkards were howling and mourning and they they were the ones that were first uh, sobbing at the destruction and now in verse 9 the the priest the lord's ministers <clears throat> and then verses 10 through 12 we find the sob of the husbandman it says the field is wasted the land mourneth for the corn is wasted the new wine is dry, new wine is dried up the oil languisheth be ye ashamed o ye husbandmen howl o ye vine dressers for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished. Verse 12 says, The vine is dried up, and the fig tree languisheth, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree. All these were symbolical of their prosperity and of their fruitfulness. The apple tree, even all the trees of the field are withered, because joy is withered away from the sons of men. They had a great deal to mourn about because of this destruction that had come upon the land. And we told you about the fourfold stage of the palmer worm, the locust, the canker worm, and the caterpillar that had stripped the land and had caused this great uh, desolation in the days of Joel. Other of the prophets refer to it. We get on down further and we'll find a prophecy of not only the time that uh, Joel spoke of, but the day of the Lord, which is even yet in the future, a prophecy of that time when there will be great destruction. So it says in verse 
13 now, we have the sob of the priest. It says, gird yourselves and lament, ye priests. See, the spiritual leaders, howl ye ministers of the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth. Sackcloth was a symbolical way of uh, being clothed in sackcloth. was mourning, signified the mourning. Ye ministers of my God, for the meat offering and the drink offering is withholden from the house of your God. So all their spiritual and religious services seem to be <clears throat> at an end. And it tells the priest to howl and to lament because of it. It's a bad thing when we have to see this degradation in the house of God and it comes to this particular situation where there's no spirituality and no uh, blessings of God upon the house of God. And all of these things that were provided by the Lord for their sacrifices in order for them to worship Him were null and void. They were it not, they didn't have them. In verse 14, we have the supplication of the assembly. And this is telling the priest, the people now to pray. Verse 13 told the priest to pray for their situation. Verse 14 says, Sanctify ye a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry unto the Lord. The supplication of the assembly. And then verses 15, verse 15 through 17, you have the sigh of the prophet. The prophet says, Alas for the day. For the day of the Lord is at hand, and as a destruction cometh from the Almighty, shall it come. Now this is the first introduction we have in Joel to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is spoken of as a day, and we'll describe it as we go along. In fact, I may have to just glance at some verses in the second chapter to show you the severity of the day of the Lord. And all the other prophets agree to it. It's a day that is described in various ways. Let me just give you some verses. We'll look at verse 15 here in the first chapter, and then we'll go on down and look at some verses in the second chapter and maybe give you a reference or two in the uh, other books other books of the Bible, and the prophets especially. But look at verse 15 again. It says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and as a, day, as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Now, not only was, were these things happening... In the day of uh, Joel, destruction was coming. But we find that if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh. It is nigh at hand. Now, it describes it in verse 2. A day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. So when you think of the day of the Lord... You think of what? Darkness, gloominess, clouds, thick darkness. Verse 3 says, A fire devoureth before them. Verse 3, And behind them, the last part of it, A desolate wilderness, yea, and nothing shall escape them. Down in verse 10, The earth shall quake before them, the heavens shall tremble, the sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining, and the Lord shall utter His voice before His army, for His camp is very great, for it is strong, that He is strong that executeth His word. Now look, the last part of verse 11, For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? So when we run across the statement, the day of the Lord, we'll find that even all the prophets, and we won't go into them, I have a whole list of references that I can give you concerning the other prophets 
And we call it the harmony of the prophetic word, especially concerning the day of the Lord. But we'll go on verse by verse. I just wanted to introduce you to it now because we'll have more to say about it as we progress along in the book of Joel. So when it's spoken of the day of the Lord, and Joel prophesies a day when all of these things will come to pass, and, and we can refer to the time of Christ's coming, the book of Revelation, and the great tribulation that comes, and all of it is connected with with uh, this time of, of trouble and a terrible day of darkness and thick darkness and of burning and of uh, desolation and nothing shall escape and the earthquakes and the heavens shall tremble. The sun and the moon shall be dark. The stars will withdraw their shining and the voice of God's voice will come and it will be a very terrible day. And it says, and who uh, can abide it? Who can abide it? We get over in the book of Revelation, we'll find only those who are God's children will be able to withstand and escape that terrible judgment that will be coming. So Joel is prophetic in many senses of the word. Not only were the terrible things happening in his day as a form of judgment from the Almighty, but it's a prediction of greater tribulation and judgment that shall come in the future. So look at verse 15 again, and we'll go on with uh, this uh, First chapter of the book of Joel. Now, notice here. It says uh, in verse 15, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Is not the meat meat cut off before our eyes? Yea, joy and gladness from the house of our God. A time of joy ceasing. A time that there will be sorrow instead of joy. The seed is rotten under their clods. Fruitlessness, no, no uh, produce. The garners are laid desolate. The barns are broken down, for the corn is withered. How do the beasts groan? Even the beasts. This is the sob of the beasts, verse 18. How do the beasts groan? The herds of cattle are perplexed, because they have no pasture. Yea, the flocks of sheep are made desolate. And then we come to verse 19. This is the supplication of the prophet. He says, O Lord... To thee will I cry, for the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame hath burned all the trees of the field. And as he continues on, the supplication of the beast is spoken of in verse 20. The beasts of the field cry also unto thee, for the rivers of waters are dried up. Look, no food, no water for the beasts of the field. And you know, you can imagine how scarce it was just for people. The beasts of the field cry also unto thee, for the rivers of waters are dried up, and the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness. So it was a very desolate, terrible time in the days of Joel, as well as predictions of a coming tribulation for Israel in the future. We'll get more connection with the, the prophetic aspect of this prophecy as we go along and take it verse by verse. Now, when we get to the second chapter we'll find uh, several things. First of all, the alarm is sounded in verses 1 and 2. And then verses 3 through 11, you find the invading army from the north. 3 through 11. In verses 12 through 17, you find the Lord is calling His people to true repentance. And then in verse 18, you find the great change that will take place. In verses 19 through 27... There's a promise, all the promises of restoration for Israel. In verses 28 through 31, it's spoken of here as the day of Pentecost is referred to. But 
It's even beyond that. It's not a fulfillment of all that's spoken of here in the prophet Joel, though it's referred to by Peter on the day of Pentecost, this very passage of Scripture in the book of Joel chapter 2. And we'll expound that as we come across it. But the first thing I want us to notice in the second chapter is the alarm is sounding. It says, blow ye... uh, Second chapter, verse 1 and 2, and we'll take it a couple of verses at a time. It says, Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. And we've already read this verse, but let's read it again. A day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. As the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and a strong, there hath not been ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. Generation and generation. So notice the first verse again. It says, Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. In the Old Testament, the trumpets were sounded, and often in connection with the sounding of the alarm that was to be sounded, and it was sounded in another way for the call of the people to assemble. <clears throat> we know that trumpet sounds or bugle sounds, sounds of horns have been used to, for warnings uh, throughout the ages. And they were especially used in the Old Testament because that's about the only way of communication they had to, to get things done <clears throat> when there was something like uh, a terrible tragedy that had taken place or uh, the alarm needed to be sounded because of invading enemies or the people needed to be assembled together. And they were used especially in Israel. The sounding of the trumpets meant various things. We know that even in our modern day in the army, when the bugler sounds, well, he gives different calls and you have to respond according to that call. We know that when he sounds reveille, that means get out of the bunk. And sometimes, usually it's five o'clock in the morning. And people say, why so early? You've got to get a good start on the day. I remember when I was in the Navy, they'd sound that reveille. And, we'd all, and you have to make it up and make up your bed and get everything in order in about five minutes or ten, isn't it, Tom? Tom was in there too. And Dottie was in, in the service. She knows what it's all about. In fact, that's where they met. It was in the, I think, wasn't it, Tom? And uh, anyway, it's a wonderful lot of things we could tell about that. But when that... Uh, bugler sounds that uh, reveille you better get out of bed and uh, you got just a few minutes to make up your bed I think about five or ten minutes you've got to have everything in order I mean the sheets pulled tight and all your clothes laid out and everything uh, in order and if there's an inspection you better be ready for that and some of you have been in the service that know what I'm talking about Bill Frank brother Nick and various other ones I don't know how many have been in the service, but what if you have if you have been, you know what it's all about. But uh, the trumpet sounds, and uh, you know when it sounds for uh, chow, you better get in line because you'll have about fifteen or twenty companies. Now let me just give you an illustration. A company has what 150 so people. Seem like companies some are larger, some have 125, 150, 160, but that's about a company of, in the navy. And uh, you line up in companies, and there will be company after company. I took my boot training out in San Diego. And you'd be lined up for a half a mile. A half a mile. You're going to breakfast. We're talking about going to breakfast. We're not talking about going through the buffet line down here and three guys in front of you are ten. 
We're talking about companies of people. And so, you, you go company at a time. And when you get down there close, well, uh, the company gives way to, I think it's four in a line, and then two in a line, and then single line. And then finally, you get there for breakfast. And just as soon as you finish that, you've got to go and put in your day and all the kinds of things, that activities that go on. But I'm telling you, it takes like an hour, an hour and a half to get, get through one meal. And uh, it's, it's very taxing on the body and on the mind and everything else. But anyway, the trumpets are sounding. I believe the trumpet here, uh, not only where they sounded in the Old Testament, and they are used today, and they're sounded uh, from time to time for various things. You know, when they blow the taps, it's time to go to, go to bed and turn the lights out and go to sleep. You know, a lot of people maybe do not realize, but when you have a funeral service and they blow the taps out there at the cemetery, if they have a military funeral, and it goes da 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 And it, a lot of people don't know that there's some words. And the words, day is done, gone the sun, from the lake, from the hills, from the sky. All is well, safely rest. God is nigh. So anyway, it goes. You can put those words to that tune. We used to have it in the Boy Scouts as well as a service. But anyway, blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is nigh at hand. So this was a trumpet sound of an alarm, and everyone was to be uh, mindful of what it was going to be. For the day of the Lord cometh. The trumpets are often connected in the Scripture with the appearing of the Lord and the restoration of Israel. And you read over in the book of Revelation where the trumpets were sounded for various reasons. Remember the seven trumpets that were sounded? For various reasons there in the book of Revelation. And it tells us that the, it, what kind of day it was in verse 2. Now then, in verses 3-11, through 11, you have the invading army from the north. And this is definitely prophetical and will carry over into the time of the uh, tribulation period. And it's, it is an evading, invading army, army from the north. Even though many armies have occupied Israel in time past, there's a coming invasion from the north. And they shall find uh, that it will be laid waste as they come in. They'll find the Land like the Garden of Eden, but it shall be wasteland, laid waste. And as we read it, you can dis- discern these things as we go along. A fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. The land is as the Garden of Eden before them. It's like that. And behind them a desolate wilderness. Before, it's like the Garden of Eden. And when it passes through, behind them a desolate wilderness. Yea, and nothing shall escape them. The appearance of them is the appearance of horses. You know, we have said that uh, the uh, going from the literal locusts, literal plagues of locusts in uh, Joel's day, the, the plagues of locusts themselves are no longer continued. They are symbolical of nations and of destruction that comes through nations that God will permit to come in and destroy in, in a future time. And so when it says the appearance of them is the appearance of horses and the and as the horsemen shall, so shall they run. If you go to the uh, book of Revelation, you'll find a description of some of these things 
in the book of Revelation. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains shall they leap. Like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth the stubble. As a strong people set in battle array. They're no more locusts, but they're like a strong people set in battle array. Before their face the people shall be much pained. All the faces shall gather a blackness. They shall run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war. And they shall march every one on his ways. And they shall not break their ranks. The locusts did not break their ranks. But these invading armies shall be of that same nature. Neither shall one thrust another. They shall walk every one in his path. And when they shall fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. They shall run to and fro in the city. They shall run upon the wall. They shall climb up upon the houses. They shall enter in at the windows like a thief. So this terrible invading army. And then we're told told about the earthquake. The earth shall quake before them. The heavens shall tremble. And then it talks about the things happening in the heavens. Jesus predicted this in Matthew chapter 24. When he says, the sun shall be darkened, the moon uh, uh, shall be darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. This is much the same thing that's said in the book of Matthew chapter 24 when Jesus predicts that great and terrible tribulation is to come. So verse 10 says, look at it carefully. The earth shall quake before them, the heavens shall tremble, the sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. And the Lord shall utter His voice before His army. God uses these things for His army. For his camp is very great, for he is strong that executeth his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? Now then, verses 12 through 17 show us that God wants to call his people to repentance in view of the destruction that's already taken place. Look at verse 12. Therefore, when you get the word therefore, therefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart. And with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your heart and not your garments. And turn unto the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. The Lord calls his people of old to repentance. And he calls his people now to repentance. In view of certain chastenings and judgments. And during the tribulation, there will be a truly repentant portion of the people of Israel that will turn to him. He talks about a remnant in the prophecies that shall be saved that will be turned to him. And we're glad that there will be a time of repentance. But my, what tribulation and what terrible things must happen before that does happen. But he bases his call to repentance upon this great and terrible day. If you look at the last part of verse 11, he says, For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? Therefore... Verse 12, Therefore also now, saith the Lord, when people are called to repent, they're not to wait till later on. When the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, when God is dealing with you, and when there's terrible uh, judgments coming and uh, chastening coming from the hand of God, He says, Therefore also now, saith the Lord. You know, the Bible says, Now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. In Isaiah 1, verse 18, it says, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. He didn't say come tomorrow, the next day, or next week. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Verse 12, look at it. 
And let's dissect it and look at it very carefully. Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me. Now this is just not a haphazard turning. But he says, with all your heart. With all your heart. So the Lord wants true repentance. He doesn't want this business in our lives that when something happens, we're sorry that we got caught and sorry we had to suffer for it and say, Lord, help me now. And then the next day go out and do worse. When we turn with all of our heart, there will be a change in our whole uh, conversation or matter of, manner of life, a conversation used in that sense. There will be a whole change in our walk. And the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And when you find people that say, oh, I repented of my sin and I turned to God, and then you find them living like the devil and living ungodly lives and still going on the same way, that's not true repentance. In the book of First Thessalonians, I believe it's chapter 1, probably verse 9, speaks of the Thessalonians, says how they turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. It's an about face. It's a complete change. Turn to God from something. And any true repentance is turning to God. It's not turning to, from one denomination to another, from one religion to another, from one church to another. We have people that claim repentance and they'll say, I changed. Changed from one denomination to another denomination. But our turning is to turn to what? God. Look this. It says, Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me. Now look, with all your heart. And look, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. Being sorry for our sins. I mean, meaning business about it. I wonder how many people really mean business about their turning to God. I wonder how many people really mean business about rededication. We, you know, see people in revival meetings and under the sound of the preaching of the Word and the emotional stir that takes place many times, you'll find people coming down the aisles and, and weeping and they'll find and, and saying, I want to turn to God and I want to serve the Lord and I want to be, uh, you know, repent of my sins. And three weeks later, you can't find them. Many of them. Sometimes there will be the lasting Real repentance in the heart, from the heart, and it touches more than the emotions. Did you know true repentance touches the will? It means not only you want to and you're emotionally stirred to do it, but you're willing to lay it aside and do it. And if God doesn't reach down deep enough and touch the will of the person so that it makes a change in his life, instead of just an emotional stir, then he's, it's not true repentance. True repentance will change you. And it will cause you to do what God wants you to do. And the Bible says, He that doeth the will of God abideth forever. You're not saved by works, but you are saved by true, genuine repentance and faith. And it can't be just slight. We have all kinds of evangelistic efforts going forth in the world today. But how much of it is genuine? And certainly we're not against any evangelistic work that will accomplish its purpose. But the, the numbers and the people sometimes are not affected deeply enough to really change their lives. And that's the sad thing about it. It's the sad thing about it in many uh, great uh, numbered evangelistic services. You have people that are called upon 
Some of them are genuine, some of them are not. We trust that most of them are. We'd like for all of them to be. But God is not shortened by saving by many or by few. He'll save whoever truly repents and turns to Him. And as far as God's children are concerned, we need to realize that this book here of Joel is speaking basically of the children of God. In verse 12, uh, Israel of old, Therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. Now look verse 13. And rend your heart and not your garments. In the Old Testament, they would rend their garments in, as a sign of mourning, a sign of affliction, a sign of turning to God. But he says, Rend your heart and not your garments. And turn unto the Lord your God. And here shows, For He is gracious and merciful. God is forgiving. Slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. He'll withdraw the evil. Not that he does evil, but he'll withdraw the punishment and the evil. Verse 14. 14. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God? It says in verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. It was all the people that were called. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders, gather the children, and those that suck the breast. Let the bridegroom go forth of his, his chamber, and the bride out of her closet. God wanted everyone. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar. And let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach. Spare thy people. You know, when Israel sinned back in the book of Exodus, when Moses uh, was found to be a man that had to stand between them. The Bible says he was a man that stood in the gap. In the Psalms it said that had not Moses, my servant, stood in the gap, God would have destroyed them. But he interceded for them. I wonder how much prayer and intercession we make for people who are needing that intercession. Notice this verse again. It says, Let the priest, the minister of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar. And let them say, look, what? Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Don't turn them over to the heathen. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? The plea of the priests here and the ministers of the Lord was that God would not let His people be so deserted and so looked upon as if God had forsaken them, where the heathen would say, Where is your God? When you and I have trouble... Sometimes people look at our lives and look at our problems and they say, where is your God? Where is He in all this uh, problem you have and this trial, this affliction? In fact, one of the Psalms, I have a message on them saying, where is thy God? Where is thy God? The psalmist, when he was disheartened, he knew that that would be the cry of many, that they would say, where is thy God? And we have a message that tells us, we have the answer. He is in heaven above. He's above us. He's around us. The angel of the Lord is round about them that fear Him. He is beneath us. The eternal God is our refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. He is with us. The Bible tells us he, that He'll be with us. Jesus said, I will be with thee always. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And the Bible tells us that He is within us. He sent the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. And He shall be in you forever. He doesn't come and go. And then one day we'll be in His presence in glory. But we have an answer for those that say, Where is thy God? Where is their God? Now then, 
The great change takes place in verse 18. Look at it. Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Yea, the Lord will answer, look, and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and you shall be satisfied therewith, and I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. Let's stop. We have to stop there. There's not enough time to finish this wonderful passage of Scripture. But he's going to make them fruitful again. And we'll get into that when we talk about the promises of restoration. Start in verse 19. And that's another section that we'll deal with in this second chapter in our next lesson. So let us suffice with verse 18 tonight. And we'll pick up with verse 19 and how God has promised them uh, restoration. And the rest of the chapter deals mostly with the blessings of God upon them in the future time. So thank you.